Our Father, the scripture tells us that those who know thy name will put their trust in thee. And we thank you for the name of Jesus, the name that is above every name. There is no other name given to men under heaven, under heaven by which they might be saved except the name of Jesus. We are grateful. We are grateful at this uh, time of year as we enter into Thanksgiving and Christmas. We, we want to be careful to be thankful. In Romans 1, it talks of those who knew the truth. All men know the truth because you write the truth of yourself on their hearts and they observe the fact that you exist from creation. Uh, from creation. We see what you have made and we know that you're there. But instead of uh, giving thanks, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We want to be careful to give thanks. And not just on Thanksgiving, we especially want to do it on that day where we remember that historically those people who were persecuted in England and then because of their love for the Bible and had to spend some time in France before they could ever get on that little rinky-dink vessel. And a lot of them didn't even make, make it alive. But you providentially provided for them and they gave thanks. And then it's Christmas and with all the hoopla in this country, uh, all, all of the activity, we all see it, all the commercialism. The heart of this is that God's son came down and was born of a virgin and lived a sinless life and went to the cross and died for our sins and rose on the third day. And now Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. We uh, are we're, we're grateful that we know the truth of Christmas. We're grateful for a Savior. A Savior who not only saves us, but sustains us who gets us through the ups and downs of life, the good times, the hard times, who never will leave us or forsake us, who will not abandon us. And inevitably, Lord, there are many men in here tonight who are in situations where they have no option except to trust in you. Well, there, there are other options. We can trust in ourselves or do something that is illegitimate to get a result that we would like to have, but we've pretty much learned over the years that's not the way to go about life. We do what we can legitimately do, but our trust is in you. Uh, you are a faithful God. You have gotten us through so many things. You have delivered us so many times. You've gotten us out of spots where there was no getting out. 
but you made a way. So what that does is it builds our faith and it builds our trust that we're never alone, that we're never by ourselves, that we're never abandoned, but that you are at work in our lives actively. And even when we're worn out and fatigued and overwhelmed and battle-weary, the psalmist said, when my spirit was overwhelmed, you knew my path. When we think we're pretty much finished, well, we're just fatigued. You've got the next chapter already written and ordained. So we thank you tonight. We're living in troubled times. We're living in dangerous times. We're living in times where things we have always had and held on to are being destroyed actively. But those who know thy name will put their trust in thee. We trust you with our whole lives. You will never disappoint. If what we pray for specifically you don't give, it's because you have something infinitely better. We thank you for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we have been doing our study on the Ten Commandments. We are going to pick that up again when we reconvene in January. I didn't want to start a new commandment tonight because we've got a long break here. So what I want to do is do something a little bit different, but it certainly relates to what we've been studying. It was said in 1 Chronicles 12, verse 32, of the men of Issachar, of the tribe of Issachar. 1 Chronicles 12 is talking about the different tribes. And <clears throat> in that chapter, it starts off with the tribe of Benjamin. It says they were men who were skilled in warfare um, with both their left and their right hand. They were skilled with the sling. They were skilled with the bow. Uh, most of the tribe of Benjamin, it's kind of interesting, they were left-handed. Their primary hand was the left hand. But if they got wounded in battle in the left, it really didn't matter because they were as good with the right as they were with the left. And that's kind of what you get as you go through First Chronicles 12. The description of these um, valiant men but when you get to verse 32, it says, and the men of Issachar were men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. That's what they brought to the table, the men of Issachar. They understood the times. In other words, they had discernment. Discernment is the ability to look at what everyone else is seeing yet seeing it through the eyes 
of the Lord and his word. It's seeing the spiritual significance of what is going on around you. Spiritual warfare is always going around us. If you read Ephesians 6, there is, we, 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 we battle not against flesh and blood, but against the, the forces of darkness, darknesses, the principalities. There is an unseen spiritual world. At a certain point, if I'm not mistaken, it was Elisha. <clears throat> and Elisha, I'm doing this off the top of my head, didn't plan on bringing this in, but Elisha would tell the king of Israel what the enemy king was planning to do to attack God's people. It happened several times, and this king would make these battle plans and show up, and there they were. And he wanted to know which of his men was the traitor, and one of his men said, it's not any of us, it's the man of God who knows what you think in your bedchamber. Where is he? I believe he was in Dothan. Dothan, Alabama. <laughs> Not quite. But he was in Dothan, and they said, let's go get him. So they surround that little town. Here's his army. And Elisha's servant goes out in the morning to get the, the paper. And he looks around, and there's this army. And he runs in and gets Elisha, and he says, Master, Master, look. And Elisha says to him, you don't need to worry. There are more of us than there are of them. And then Elisha said, Lord, open his eyes that he might see. And he saw the myriads and myriads of fiery chariots and angelic beings. That's what I'm talking about. There's an unseen world that we know is there from the scriptures and from the word of God. The men of this car understood the times. What's going on in this country right now, what's going on in the world, it's spiritual battle. We see individuals with flesh and blood. There, there are individual spiritual beings behind them, fallen angels, Satan and his hordes. And then there's God's army. The men of Issachar understood the times, that's discernment, and they knew what Israel should do. When we are experiencing times that are, well, we described it earlier in this uh, series, we, we said that we're going to study the Ten Commandments because it's gold, God's gold standard. The Ten Commandments are the basis of law and ethics. It, they are foundational. It is the moral law of God for all people in all cultures and all times. But we are living in days of the hyperinflation of lawlessness and wickedness. 
Does it not seem that just about every day you hear something on the news and lawlessness is increasing? It's just where we are. It just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And so what happens is, as we're living in this, at certain times we lose heart and we get frustrated and we think, oh my gosh, I mean, all is lost and all of, what do I do? The men of Issachar understood the times and knew what Israel should do. This is what God provides for his men who seek him. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously, without holding back. God will teach us and instruct us how to navigate this culture that has lost its mind. If we ask him. What we want to do tonight is to basically take a pause from, the, from our study and become men of Issachar. We want to take a step back and <clears throat> ask how the Ten Commandments relate to our times, how the moral law of God relates to our times, because this is really the issue. So I'm gonna give you an outline. And we will, um, by faith, we will get through this tonight. I'm making that statement. We shall see. We better get through it because we don't wait, meet for another, what, eight weeks? So um, there's no picking it up next week. So my heading is understanding the times. And then I've got four questions. Number one, in our times, we have two generations that are deeply divided. In our times, we have two generations that are deeply divided. I'll come back to that. Secondly, we have, in our times, two views of freedom. In our times, we have two views of freedom. And did I not say these were questions? They're not questions, they're statements. I don't know where that came from, so we'll just edit it out and no one will ever know that I made a mistake. So our second point is that in our times, we have two views of freedom. Third, in our times, we have a fundamental question to ask hyphen, where does freedom come from? Where does freedom come from? And then the fourth point is, how do we move ahead? So there are two statements and two questions. How do we move ahead in light of what's going on? So, let's tackle this. We've been studying the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. I'd like you to turn to Exodus, but not to... Well, actually, I do want you to turn to Exodus 20, and we're going to go back to what was called the preamble of the Ten Commandments. And then we're going to go a little backwards in Exodus 
Exodus 20, verse 1, Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Now, in a minute, you're going to see why this is important and applicable to where we are right now in this country. But for now, I just want you to be aware that it's there. Earlier in the semester, I mentioned a book, and some of you guys told me you got the book and read it. It's called The Hope of Nations by John S. Dickerson. Uh, he is a millennial pastor, a guy that was an investigative reporter, won a national award as the most valuable young investigative reporter. He tells the story in here. He's having dinner with Charles Gibson, the former anchor of ABC News, who, along with Tom Brokaw, put this award together, and they're having a big dinner in New York. And he starts, and Charles Gibson says, so you're leaving reporting to become a pastor. That's how he starts the book, yeah. Uh, this young pastor gets what's going on right now. He gets it. I mean, he flat out gets it. And he is one of them. It's a disturbing book because he deals with facts and what is happening right now. But it is also a very encouraging book because he has a biblical view of all things. And he looks at our times through the big picture grid of what God is doing not only in history, but what God has said he's going to do in the future. So it's extremely realistic. Right along with this book is the latest book by Os Guinness. Anything he writes, I read. This is called The Last Call for Liberty. And it is profound. It's different than Dickerson, but they complement each other. Uh, Os Guinness, long time, uh, a descendant of the Guinness, Arthur Guinness, who started the Guinness Brewery in uh, Ireland. A book has been written on the Guinness family. Uh, Arthur Guinness was a committed Christian who started Guinness Brewery because in those times in Dublin, Ireland, there were, we, we have people that are, uh, we have a meth crisis. They had a gin crisis. And it was horrific what was happening to the community and the families, and they were being destroyed. He, had, he, he came into some money, Arthur Guinness, and asked God to show him what he could do to make a difference in his country and his nation. He opens a brewery. Now, that'll throw some of you. But it was, he had a recipe that had a lot of B vitamins. He put it together very carefully. He urged responsibility. He started building a company that took care. Anyway, really interesting. And then you study, Stephen Mansfield wrote a book about Guinness. Uh, there historically have been three strains from, the Guin from Arthur Guinness. Uh, those who kept the brewery going, those who went into banking, and then those who went into missions and pastoring. Uh, 
Os Guinness was born in China, although he's a Brit. He was born in China because his parents were missionaries in Britain. When the uh, revolution took place with Mao Zedong in China, he had two brothers die of, of starvation. He barely got out. He's got an interesting background. Then went on, got a PhD at Oxford, studied and understand Francis Schaeffer. He is, he's an apologist, he's a philosopher, he understands scripture, he has an amazing grasp of history. These two books together are powerful. Um, interesting, last call for liberty. What is our, our first point about understanding our times? We have two generations that are deeply divided. Allow me to quote Guinness. Now, I'm gonna give you some quotes tonight. Because these guys make a case for how we should live in these times and with what is going on now and in regard to more than likely what is coming down the pike that we're gonna to have to deal with. Guinness, who as I mentioned is a Brit, starts out in his introduction by saying, with America bitterly divided and American public life sinking into chaos and conflict, may a visiting foreigner be permitted a word. Here's his word. For admirers of America today, sleep has become fitful. The great American Republic is in the throes of its greatest, gravest crisis since the Civil War, a crisis that threatens its greatness, its freedom, and its character. As with that early time of terrible self-inflicted judgment, the deepest threat is not the foreign invader, but the American insider. The problem is not America against the world or the world against America, but America against itself. Citizens against citizens, government against citizens, one president against another president, and one view of America in radical opposition to another. Americans have become their own most bitter enemies, and even the enemies of their centuries-old republic. Political debate has degenerated into degrading and barbaric incivility, and wild talk of spying, leaking, impeachment, governability, the 25th Amendment, and even assassination and secession are in the air. He goes on and says this. This is a great diagnosis. One index of a healthy, free, and democratic society is its ability to deal constructively with differences and disagreements. How then are we to understand America's much-touted political shift from loyal opposition to resistance as one political party opposing the other presents itself in a term but used by the French patriots resisting the Nazi occupation. While it fights back in the style of Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals. I went back and read Rules for Radicals this week by Saul Alinsky. Uh, he, he mentions several people. In, he was the first community organizer. How to disrupt is what that book's about. 
radical leftist stuff. He acknowledges several individuals, including Satan, as one of the greatest examples, if not the greatest, of a radical. You might be surprised at how many high-profile people have endeared themselves to that book, have written their college theses on that book. You can go to Radcliffe and check out any thesis ever written by any student except one, Hillary Clinton. because she wrote it on this. It's under lock and key. What we are seeing is not politics as usual, but political warfare in a dangerously radical style and led by leaders who should know better. For when words break down, conflict and violence are never far away, and even careless talk of assassination is a diabolical form of violence. The world is witnessing the aggressive spread of a cancer in the constitutional republic that America was designed to be and has been for nearly two and a half centuries. That's what's going on. What it is, what we're seeing is um, we have two generations with two different philosophies that are deeply divided. It's very clear. Now, we turn to John Dickerson, and Dickerson is gonna actually name them. He calls them, number one, he says we have a generation, and the label he gives would be truth-based thinkers. Um, if you're the last vestige of truth-based thinkers in America are baby boomers. I'm a baby boomer, and I'm almost 70 years old. The baby boomers are on their way out. So if you're in your 80s, if you're in your 70s, into your 60s, uh, you, uh, you're truth-based. Even if your family wasn't Christian, you probably have Christianity somewhere back in your family. Um, as Alan Bloom said, a number of years ago, it used to be that every American home had a Bible. And even if people weren't Christians, that Bible represented what you believed morally. You believed in the Constitution, you believed in American exceptionalism. Even though America was flawed, it was better than anything else out there in any other country in the world. This is why people from all over the world tried to get in here. Uh, you believed in truth that truth was absolute. That's a certain generation. There's a second generation that he calls post-truth thinkers. Uh, post meaning after, not post-toasties, not post-serial. After-truth thinkers. This is the younger generation coming up. We have a group that we call millennials. And they're very unique. And they're very different. Every generation has its differences. We'll see in a minute how different so many of these millennials are. Not all of them, but many of them. 
he uses an illustration, Dickerson does. Uh, when I read this book, I, I, when I first mentioned it to you, I, I, oftentimes I'll get into a book and I'll just, I'll try to knock it out in you know, a couple of days, three days. I, I can read fairly quickly. This one, I, uh, I'd read a couple chapters and then I couldn't read anymore for several weeks. It was so disturbing. I just had to get away from it. And then I come back to it, and I, I, got, it, I got it done over the summer. But uh, it's not that long of a book, but it's disturbing. One of the things he does in here is that he talks about, because of what millennials believe, he talks about upcoming elections. Now, we just went through a midterm election. I don't know if any of you guys remember this of a week or two ago. What he says in this book is this. He says, just based on sheer numbers, that perhaps the last election that truth-based thinkers will ever win will be 2020. 2024 is a real long shot. Why? Because they're dying off and the millennials are coming up. And the millennials have a whole different philosophy than the truth-based thinkers. He, uh, but we've just seen that. Kind of shocking how pervasive it is. But the handwriting is on the wall. So, I want to get to page 114 here. Where's my clock? There it is. In October 2016, the victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, never heard of this group, but the victims of Communism Memorial Foundation commissioned a survey. And he has quoted other surveys prior to this. It also found a dramatic rise among young Americans who said they would vote for a socialist candidate for president. Marion Smith, the director who commissioned that study, drew this conclusion. Quote, the millennials are sadly unaware of the history of communism in the last century and of the crimes committed by the Communist Party in the last 100 years, said Smith. Socialism is kind of a nice word for what is really communism. As a result, said Smith, the younger generation is not looking for ways to improve the existing system of free enterprise, the rule of law, democratic government, <clears throat> and respect for human rights. But they want to try a completely different system. They are interested in the socialist system, which we think is dangerous. But why do they think it's dangerous? Because it is. Venezuela, Cuba, Eastern Europe, it's dangerous. It's never worked. It's never worked. And it's anti-God, and it's anti-Bible, and it's anti-freedom. Dickerson says, uh, quotes the Washington Post, he's, uh, more young people voted for Bernie Sanders than for Trump and Clinton combined. 
by a lot. Clinton and Trump together earned 1.5 million votes from Americans under the age of 30. Compare that to 2 million votes for Bernie Sanders. Now, you're saying, I thought this was a Bible study. It is a Bible study. Well, you're getting political. No, I'm just giving you some statistics. Because we're asking uh, how we can be men of Issachar who understand our times. This helps me to understand our times and what's going on and where we are headed. He describes in here truth-based thinkers. Uh, won't spend too much time on this, but just so you get a sense of who this group would be. He says there are assumptions and traits that are typically true of truth-based thinkers. One, they hold objective standards of truth to be more authoritative than personal experience. Okay? Pervasively, those standards in the U.S. have been the Bible, Christian values, and the U.S. Constitution. They hold on to those things. Uh, they are eager to critique and weigh truth claims because they have been taught to pursue the truth. We debate. They can disagree with a person about the truth without hating the person because truth is a separate party from the disagreement. Uh, they value factual accuracy. They can be condescending or close-minded towards ideologies they, seem, uh, they deem to be false. Why would you be close-minded? Because it's false. That's why I think this is the truth. Truth is narrow. Truth is not broad. There is one name given unto men under heaven by which they may be saved, the name of Jesus. There's not 12 names. There's not 18 names. There's not 100 names. There's one name. I am the way, Jesus said, the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That's exclusive and it's narrow. Here are some characteristics that are true of Christian truth-based ideology itself. The Christian truth-based ideology is the ideological seed in the founding of most American universities. Evidence of this remains to this day in the crests of many universities, like Harvard, which includes the word truth written in Latin on a Bible, Veritas. Um, the Ivy League universities, except for one or two, were all Christian universities to train pastors for the preaching of the gospel. Uh, the truth-based ideology is the philosophy that revolutionized the study of science in the natural world. I had a young millennial guy say to me recently that uh, he believes in science. Uh, Christianity suppresses science and suppresses advancement. And I said, no, I want to say something to you nicely, but I want to tell you flat out that you could not be more wrong. You could not be more wrong. As Dickerson says in this book, what young people don't realize is that they're living in a country that is exceptional because of Christian people who believed in Christian truths and believed in Christian virtues who planted seed that now have turned into abundant and magnificent oaks and they're living off the affluence and the work of those in the past and in their universities, they're being taught to cut those magnificent oaks off at the base and uproot everything. 
somebody worked hard for us to enjoy what we've got right now. You know that. Uh, Post-truth thinkers, some characteristics. What does post-truth look like? Dickerson responds. They are hesitant to critique any outside culture, religion, or way of life. They are repulsed by traditional American claims of morality or absolute truth. They are eager to promote exotic ideologies without examining the impact on human rights. They are prejudiced against any truth claim that, origin, that originates in the Christianized West, including the Bible, Judeo-Christian ethics, Christian morals, or patriotism. They are conditioned to be suspicious or even prejudiced against certain classes that they've been trained to view as oppressors. For example, rich white males, Christians, etc. Here's some characteristics, and there's a whole bunch of them, so I'm not going to read them all. You, you know what we're talking about here. A post-truth ideology is less a logical system and more a floating set of moral imperatives of societal assumptions that often contradict each other. It just depends on what day you catch them. As Thomas Sowell recently said, it's not that Johnny can't read, it's that Johnny can't think. All Johnny can do is feel. And that's where we are. In this younger generation, truth is not central, feelings are central. Is it all young people? Of course not. It's a high number. In contradiction with his basic premise, a post-truth ideology views itself as superior to the old truth view of reality. It will, claim, it will rarely claim, however, supremacy over ideologies that are foreign or exotic. Facts that support the post-truth constellation of right and wrong will be utilized with bravado, whereas facts that contradict the post-truth constellation of right and wrong will be ignored. He talks about um, the rudeness. He talks about uh, the name-calling. He talks about the foul language. He, you get it. Okay. These are the times we're living in. This changed very rapidly. Now, it had its seized back in the 60s. The, really, the first thing that happened in Berkeley was the free speech movement. That came from the left, and they, they had these names. Free speech. I remember that as a kid, seeing, living in the Bay Area, seeing on local news those demonstrations at Berkeley, the free speech movement. Interesting how that's morphed into no speech. No, I, no, no, yeah, there's no free speech. You got to say what I think you ought to say. Okay, these are our times. Let's move to the second one. You, you get the story here. So you see the two generations. Secondly, we have two views of freedom. Two views of freedom. The first view would be freedom with restraint. The second view would be freedom without restraint. In, in John 8, Jesus said this. 
Jesus said, if you continue in my word, if you continue in my word, and by the way, the whole thing is his word, the whole thing. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall, what? Set you free. Now, part of his word would be the Ten Commandments that were given to Moses on Sinai by whom? By God. Jesus is God. So Jesus is behind the Ten Commandments. Jesus is the primary agent of creation. We have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. By him and for him, all things were created. He spoke the worlds into existence. So Jesus isn't on every page. He, he said in John 5 to the Pharisees who love Moses, he, he said, if you believe Moses, you'd believe me because he wrote about me. This whole book's about him. So if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. In the Ten Commandments are restraints. Because without restraints, you can't have freedom. The Lord God is a good God. He will tell you what to do. He will tell you what not to do. And it has been understood historically in this nation because we had the Ten Commandments and had them in our schools and we had a Christian worldview that genuine freedom came with restraints. But now we're facing something that says they want freedom without restraints. So you got two views. This is interesting to me. We, we got two generations that are different. We, we've got two views of freedom. Uh, in Psalm 1, that kicks off all the Psalms, you got um, two ways of wisdom. How blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Who would that be? It's talking about who influences you. It's the same thing that is in 1 Corinthians, where is it? One, see there's two kinds of wisdom. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 1. And see, all this stuff comes to bear on what we're dealing with right now in our times, in this culture. Uh, so Paul in, let, let, me, let me find this real quick. So in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 20, Paul says, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So you see, you have the wisdom of the world, then you have the wisdom of God. In Psalm 1, he starts off, the 150 Psalms are saying how blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Those who instead of worshiping the one true God, worship idols of their own making. Who have positions of power and status and write books and are published and are considered to be the great philosophers of all time and of mankind. How blessed is the man who walks not in their counsel. Now, it doesn't hurt to be aware of what they say but they don't influence. How blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the path of sinners or sits in the seat of scoffers. 
But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates both day and night. And he shall be like a tree firmly planted by streams of living water, which yields its fruit in season. And it does not wither. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff. They shall not stand in the day of judgment. There's two ways to walk through life. The wisdom of the world or the wisdom of God. Paul goes on and says in 1 Corinthians 1, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. And see, his problem with philosophers. Philosophers won't get you to God. Because, you see, they have other gods. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for a sign, Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Christ is the power of God, and he's the wisdom of God. He's the basis of all civilization. And everything that is good and holy and pure and magnificent and beautiful. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God's never weak. (laughs) But you see what he's saying. There is no comparison to the wisdom of God and the wisdom of men. So why choose the wisdom of men? You got two ways. In Matthew 7, Jesus said there are two foundations. Um, Those who hear my word and do it, those who hear my word and act upon it shall be like the man who built his house on the rock. And the storms came and the winds blew and his house was safe and firm. Those who hear my words and do not do them shall be like the man who built his house on the sand. And the winds came, the storms blew, and great was his fall. There's always two ways. So we have two views of freedom. Uh, Again, let me, you guys still with me? Okay. So let me go back to Guinness. Where's my bottle? There's a little humor there, a little joke. (laughs) Didn't quite work. Again, it says, if nations are to be understood by what they love supremely, then freedom is and always has been the key to America. Now remember, he's writing as a Brit. But the question facing America is, what is the key to freedom? At the core, the deepest division is rooted in the difference between two world-changing and opposing revolutions. This is wild. This is brilliant. At the core, the deepest division, he's talking about right now, is the deepest division is rooted in the differences between two world-changing and opposing revolutions. The American Revolution of 1776 and the French Revolution of 1789. And he's exactly right. And their rival views of freedom and the nature of the American experiment. He goes on and says, it could be argued that the clash right now is simply between the old classic American liberalism and the new left liberalism that emerged from the 60s. But it's deeper than that. The fundamental clash is between the spirit, the heirs, and the allies of 1776 
and the ideas that made the American Revolution versus the spirit, the heirs, and the allies of 1789 and the different ideas that made the French Revolution and seeded the progressive liberalism of the left. There were two different worlds, the American Revolution and the French Revolution. And the French Revolution, it was anarchy. It was chaos. It was lawlessness. If you looked at somebody and raised your eyebrow the wrong way, it could cost you your head. It was anarchy, it was chaos, it was lawlessness. If you read Paul Johnson, the historian, he talks about, I think it's in his book, Intellectuals, that the greatest mass murderers in all the world have been the tyrants and dictators that embraced the principles of the French Revolution that they learned in Paris studying at the University of Sorbonne. Pol Pot, Cambodia. You just start working your way through. Any dictator, Idi Amin, now I'm not sure he was in France, but he embraced this. It's fascinating, he just goes right down the line. It was two different views, and by the way, when you look at the French Revolution, it was anti-God, it was anti-truth, it was anti-Bible. Now, a lot of the reaction was to the, um, the, the popes of Roman Catholicism that lived like Roman Caesars, and there was a lot of injustice, but it was a rebellion against the principles of the Scriptures, and it continues the pressing clash is therefore a life and death conflict between two Americas, two revolutions, and two futures. He goes on and says this. As history underscores, the way of 1789, aided and abetted by the heirs of 1917, the Russian Revolution. You study the Russian Revolution? Where'd that come from? The French Revolution. Same principles. And in 1949, the Chinese Revolution. That's where Guinness had to run for his life, and his brother starved to death. They have led and always will lead to catastrophe for the cause of freedom and a liberal political order, whereas the way of 1776, with all of its shortcomings, has led to some of freedom's greatest successes, however much maligned today. So that's what we're up against. He says, Americans are fast approaching a showdown, a great Rubicon. Is 1776 to be restored? with its flaws acknowledged and remedied, or is it to be replaced by 1789 and its current progressive heirs? The outcome will favor one view of freedom or the other, or perhaps the, ob the abolition of freedom altogether. Sobering stuff. But you see the roots. This stuff is not disconnected, it's connected. Aren't you glad you came tonight? Aren't you encouraged? But see, hey, we're the men. We're, we're followers of Christ. The men of Issachar understood the times. I've got to understand what's going on. Over the years, I've been in a lot of churches doing a lot of conferences. I, you see some interesting things. I've been in churches. You walk in there. It's a time warp. You're walking into 1955. Now, it's 1955. They haven't changed the carpet since 55. They haven't changed the hymnals. They dress like it's 55. 
Parking lot, 55 Fords, 55 Chevys, 55 Mercuries. It's just 50. They love 55. The problem is it's not 55. We're a long way away from 55. Let's go to the third one. In our times, we have a fundamental question to ask. The question is, where does freedom come from? What he does in this book, he is, uh, he is trying to establish groundwork where there can be dialogue. So he asks a number of questions. But the first question that he asks is, do you know where your freedom came from? Do you know where your freedom came from? This gets really interesting. And this is going to tie us into um, Exodus. So just think about that for a minute. That's a great question. Do you know where your freedom? We've got amazing freedoms here that we've always had. And this is why people wanted to come here. Freedom of religion. Freedom of speech. Uh, I mean, unlike any other nation in the world. So Guinness writes this. Where then is the source of American freedom and why does the story of freedom matter? The first question, therefore, asks, do Americans realize where their freedom came from? He says, many people assume quickly that American democracy must obviously come from democratic Athens or perhaps from Roman civic virtue. But that would be wrong. For as much as the founders learned or tried to learn from classical models of Greek and Roman government, governance and to build Capitol Hill in honor of their style, they were extremely wary of direct democracy because of its short-lived history and its turbulent record. That's why we don't have a straight democracy. That's why Vermont has two senators and Texas has two senators, although there are ranches in Texas bigger than Vermont. That's why you got a Senate. That's why you got a House. That's why you got three branches, which comes out of Isaiah. That's interesting, isn't it? A different, surprising, and far more important past deserves to be remembered and brought into the discussion today. The forgotten contribution of the Jews and Mount Sinai and the way in which it both built on and decisively advanced the ancient liberties of the English. Magna Carta. Now, if you're young, you may not know what I'm talking about unless you were homeschooled or went to a Christian school that had classical teaching. If you're in public school and you're young, you're going, what? But if you're older, you got some miles on your tires, you remember the Magna Carta, how important that was in England. Uh, what he does now, he's going to do this thing that is wild <laughs> to show that liberty comes from God Almighty. The liberty we've enjoyed here comes from God Almighty. He talks about reading uh, some rabbis who really get this, contemporary rabbis. And he names them and he says, Elazar Walzer, Jonathan Sachs and others have agreed 
argued that the book of Exodus is the master story of Western freedom and the ultimate regime change in all of history. John Calvin expounded it in Geneva and Zwingli in Zurich, John Knox in Scotland, Oliver Cromwell in England, William Bradford on the Mayflower. What's he talking about? Let my people go. That's what he's talking about. Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson proposed to use its themes in the Great Seal of the United States. The African-American slaves use it to express their longings for freedom and their immortal spirituals. Go down Moses. Go down Moses for what? And tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Because I've heard their cries. They're in slavery. They're in bondage. That was Moses' mission. To go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Martin Luther King preached from the story in his last sermon the night before he was assassinated in April of 68. To anyone who knows the story and lessons of Exodus, there is no situation so bad that they need stay as it is. There is always the possibility of another way and a better situation. There is always the possibility of liberation. There is always the hope of freedom. In a Thanksgiving sermon in 1799, Abiel Abbott spoke for many Americans of his generation when he said, it has often been remarked that the people of the United States come nearer to a parallel with ancient Israel than any other nation upon the globe. Years later, the, post, uh, the poet Henrik Heine widened the point and said, since the Exodus, freedom has always spoken with a Hebrew accent. That's brilliant. Uh, I won't read the quote, but John Adams, John Adams the first constitution of a state in America was Massachusetts. John Adams wrote it, and he said, my secret is that my best instructors were the Hebrews. Nations um, and societies are made up of four types. You guys still with me? There'll be a quiz at the end. Okay? This is Guinness. There are organic societies they're linked by blood, kinship, ancestral ties, like Scottish clans, African tribes. Second, there are hierarchical societies, societies that are linked by force and conquest, Roman Empire, Prussian monarchy, Chinese communism today. Third, there are contractual societies based on a series of legal contracts. Um, fourth, there are covenantal societies that are linked by choice and binding agreement, such as ancient Israel after the Sinai Covenant, Switzerland after the birth of the Helvetic Confession, and the United States after rejecting the Articles of Confederacy and passing the U.S. Constitution in 1787. If these Jewish writers are right, Americans are not simply an almost chosen people. They live in an almost covenanted polity, and they were heirs of the Jewish almost democracy. It's, it's not an exact parallel, but there are all kinds of parallels. It, in, uh, okay, so the book of Exodus. Fifty seconds. But it's our last night. And I believe in freedom without restraint. <laughs> If you've been here, you know that that's true, time-wise. So I'm going to go a little bit longer. Okay. The Jews got into uh, Egypt 
through Joseph when his brother sold him into slavery. And you know the amazing story that happened there. He winds up being co-ruler with Pharaoh. And then years go by, and Exodus 1 says a king in Egypt arose that didn't know Pharaoh. He didn't know history. He'd gone to public school. He didn't know anything. Uh, all he knew, he had all these people that were outnumbering him, and they were breeding like rabbits. And so he said to the Hebrew women, uh, if this lady's in labor, you know, uh, and if it's a boy, kill it. If it's a little girl, she can live. They didn't obey. Moses was born during this time. A lot of times you look around and say, you know, I don't think I want to bring a child into the world right now. This is not a good time. It's never a good time to have kids. It's never a good time. This was really a bad time because they were killing little boys. So his mom and dad got this little ark, little boat thing, put it in the Nile, and you know Pharaoh's, by chance, Pharaoh's daughter saw him. By chance. He winds up being raised as Pharaoh's daughter. His mom is his nanny. Only God could do that. He's raised as Pharaoh's son. And at the age of 40, he figures out, I'm not here just for my own affluence and well-being. God put me here for a reason. God sent me to deliver these people. This is... It's in the Bible. And uh, he saw a Hebrew being beaten up by the taskmaster, and he stepped in, and he wound up killing the, the Egyptian. And he thought the people would understand that God was giving deliverance through him, but they did not understand. And next thing he knows, Pharaoh's got a most wanted poster on him, and he flees for his life to Midian. You say, what's Midian? It's uh, last gas, 300 miles. It's, that's kind of the desert it is. And he was there for 40 years. And he thought he was finished. He thought he was done. He thought it was all over. At the age of 80, he sees this bush that's being burned and not consumed. And God says, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. And then God gives him an assignment. You go back and you tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And 10 miracles. Pharaoh wouldn't do it except on the last one when the firstborn were killed. And then the people said, take everything. Here's my Rolex. Here's my Ira. Here's my Goldman Sachs account. Here's, here's my Lexus. Take it. Get out of here. We don't want you around here. And they left. And they left. And then they go into the wilderness. And then they get to Sinai. And Exodus 20, Moses is up on the mountain. And God gives the commandments. And then between Exodus 20 and all the way to through 31, God is making uh, there, he's giving different directions. He'll talk about a tabernacle. He'll talk about covenant, making a covenant. And the people say, yes, we agree to these things. Uh, they consented to be governed. Where did that come from? That's kind of wild stuff when you get into it. This is all Exodus stuff. That John Adams and the other founders and guys like Witherspoon, who was a Scottish Presbyterian who became... Uh, president of Princeton came and taught his students, James Madison and a few other guys that would come to mind, that were influenced by the Hebrew concept of freedom and liberty that came from God Almighty. Where, where do rights come from? Endowed by their creator. The other side says, there is no creator. This is fascinating stuff. But liberty comes from somewhere, and where it comes from 
is the word of God. That's where it comes from. There are parallels in the covenant with Israel and the covenant constitutionally. Not exactly the same. I want to make that clear. Fourth point. So we get this. We understand where we are. There is this division. It can't go on forever. So the question is, how do we move ahead? What do we do? What's going to happen? I've always found it interesting that when you study biblical prophecy, you can't find the United States in biblical prophecy. Yeah, we're the big boy on the block. Well, what does that mean? I don't know. Well, what do you think it means? I don't know. You got any hints? No? It's just that we're not there. You can identify certain nations very clearly, but we're not there, which is really interesting, is it not? But you see, you have the rise and the fall of great nations. And we are not, uh, Abraham Lincoln said, if America's gonna die, it's gonna die by suicide. And this is what's happening. So then the question is, Christian people, Christian men, what do we do? What do we do? So back to Dickerson. This is, I think this will be encouraging. Um, because God, does, God doesn't want us afraid. God doesn't want his people fearful. So, the, so it's not in biblical prophecy. What does that mean? What does that mean? We're going down next week. Does that mean? I didn't say that. It, it, well, we're in the last days. Well, yeah, we're, yeah, more so than we were yesterday. Every day you're closer. But we just don't know the time. We don't know what God has in mind. We just don't know. He could raise up a Churchill. He could raise up an Abraham Lincoln. The Civil War, if you read Lincoln's biography written by Dale Carnegie, believe it or not, the best one I've ever read, hands down, hands down. You see the soul of Lincoln. He did not know the Lord when he gave the first inaugural. He knew him at the second inaugural. He knew him. He knew him in his heart and gut. He knew Christ because of his sufferings. That was a hard book to read. But God raised him up, and it looked like it was over. But it wasn't over. What is God up to? We don't know. But I will tell you this, God wants his men to be courageous. 1 Corinthians 16 is it 31? He says, act like men. What does it mean to act like a man? That term was used for soldiers, soldiers in battle who exhibited bravery. It means courage. God wants his men to be courageous. We have fear, but you don't let fear dominate. Uh, we don't fall apart. Isaiah 41, do not fear for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will help you. I will strengthen you with my mighty right hand. Psalm 42, why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you cast down within me? Are you depressed with what's going on right now? I grant you it's depressing. But you see, you can't stay there. You've got to think. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Well, I'm despair because of this and this and this. Lay it out to him. Why are you in despair on my soul? And why are you cast down within me? Watch this. Hope in God, for I shall again 
praise him for the help of his saving acts. That's what he does. He's a savior. Well, we might lose some things. What if it alters? What if he's still God? Psalm 46. God is a refuge. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. New American Standard Margin. God is our refuge and strength. He is abundantly available for help in tight places. God has not given us a spirit of fear, cowardice, but that of power and love and sound thinking. So Dickerson, who's a millennial, who writes a pretty... It, let's put it this way. It's not Joel Osteen. It's not Robert Schuller. It's pretty sobering. And he just takes facts and says, here's where we're going. Add them up. Seventy percent of millennials believe it's a greater sin not to recycle than it is to watch pornography. That's astonishing. That comes from John Stone Street. We're to move ahead with courage. Now, how do I move ahead with courage? I have to think biblically. Okay? He's got a thing. He's got a chapter, Dickerson, and I'll close with this. What we can and cannot control. So instead of getting freaked out and losing your joy and getting morose and depressed and We don't need to do that, guys. Jesus said, in the world you'll have trouble. But be a good cheer, I've overcome the world. We're, we're, this, isn't, uh, this, is, this isn't Disneyland. This isn't an amusement park. This is spiritual battle. What Dickerson says, and he borrows from Henry Cloud, is that when you're feeling hopeless, what you've got to do is you've got to make a list. Make a list of the things, first of all, that you cannot control. Secondly, make a list of the things that you can control. He's got a list. Things I cannot control. I cannot control if North Korea launches. I cannot control China's military economy or treatment of Christians. I can't control the U.S. stock market. I can't control ISIS or radical terrorists. I can't control what children are being taught by American society at large. I, by the way, by the way, now here's a thought. What you can't control, God does. Every once in a while, in fact, quite often, I'll have somebody say to me, why are you always talking about the sovereignty of God? Because it is the greatest truth that I know of. It defeats anxiety. It, de it, it obliterates worry. It crushes fear. It, it gives a sense of... When you start to get a grip, or may I say, when it starts to get a grip on you, the sovereignty of God, it gives you relief. It gives you peace. 
It gives you joy in the midst of tough circumstances. Because God's sovereign. I can't do anything about North Korea. God does. God owns that sucker. That sucker can't breathe without Jesus. In him we move, live and move and have our breath. Every human power Jesus controls. By the way, he put them there and he takes them down. He owns great nations. Isaiah 40. Scarcely have they been sown, scarcely have they been planted. He blows on them and they wither. You ever heard of the rise and fall of great nations? Great nations last at the most 250 years. Great empires. Oh, they could never be taken down. Really? They go down. See, what I can't control, just don't, the things I can't control, okay, I can't control this. God controls it. He's got a plan for the ages. God is good. God is just. Jesus is coming back. There will be an Antichrist. He'll be defeated. Christians will be martyred. Not all, some. Christians will go through hard times, but the hard times God works for good. He's in charge. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. His throne is in the heavens, Psalm 103. His sovereignty, his absolute control, rules over all the planets. He changes the climates. He always has, he always will. He says there will never, there will never, the earth will never be destroyed by heat or cold. He said that to Noah. So don't sweat it. What I can't control, he can. He does. He will. I can't control the direction of the future. He's got the future. He's written it. He owns it. I cannot control the global order. He, he, he runs those suckers like a checkerboard. That's what he does. He's ordained it. No one can thwart his hand. Surely it will come to pass. Things I can't control. Okay? Here we go. I can control my response to all these things, whether there's a response of faith or not. And see, this, you, you get this through years of, of knowing the Lord and being in the scriptures and believing the promises and watching him come through. Stuff that would freak you out 30 years ago. You get news, you go, wow, that's interesting. Didn't see that coming. Well, thank you, Lord. I don't get this. I don't understand this. But thank you that you're running the show. And thank you that you're good. And that you're faithful. I, I, don't, I don't get this. But I trust you. You respond in faith, not fear. You can control that. I can control if I'm modeling faith to my kids. I can control what I teach my kids and my grandkids and model for them in our home. I can control the moral direction of my own life. Yeah, we all do.
I can control how I will lead my family, how I will treat my wife, how I'll treat my kids and my grandkids, how I'll run my business. I can choose to believe that God has placed me here now and for a reason, and he has. We live in these times by the appointment of Almighty God. You're here for a reason. You're here for a purpose. And as things get worse and worse, and as I read the Bible, Jesus said they're going to get worse and worse. They're not going to get better and better. Now, he'll give reprieves, and he's merciful, and he's good to us. And, but generally speaking, we're heading into some rough times. Christians in Pakistan right now are just under incredible persecution if you're following that at all. Christians in Nigeria, Christians in China, we know very little of this. We're going to find out more. But we don't fear. We don't fear. Why? Because our God is sovereign. My life is in your hands. My times are in your hands. The Lord will accomplish that which concerns me. You can't die till your work is done. He's got you. Well, what if I die in persecution? Then you die in persecution. Well, I'm not sure I can handle that. That's because you're not there yet. Is it Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy 32, as thy days, so shall thy strength be. In that hour, it shall be given to you what you should speak. I couldn't handle that. You couldn't handle it right now because you don't need it. But if you get there, he'll give you what you need. His power is perfected in weakness. So don't worry about it. Don't think about it. Just know that he's there. Begin your day with the word. Saturate your mind before you turn on the news or anything else. I read the Bible first thing because I'm going to be lied to the rest of the day. <laughs> and when I read it, there's a perspective. We're in a world that says this, secularism says this is the only world that there is. Jesus said there's another world. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come and bring you into myself. Hey, man, we're good. We're good. Well, Steve, I'm fighting cancer. He controls every cell in your body. He's sovereign over that. He's got you. This isn't biblical, but I like it. If he's sovereign, go eat a cheeseburger. <laughs> and trust him. And thank him for life. So, Father, we thank you in Jesus' name tonight for who you are and for the perspective in this crazy, insane world that Jesus rules and reigns forever. And it is true, one day we'll die, but our last breath will be our best breath because we'll be with you forever. With thankfulness, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.